Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with the China Project. Subscribe to Access from the China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com as well. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious plans to shift the economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am heading back to China at the end of June for my first visit since October 2019, which is the longest I've been away from China since the gap between 1981 and 1986, I think. Uh, one of the things that I am determined to try and go see is Xiongnan New District, the futuristic city around a lake just 100 kilometers or so south by southwest of downtown Beijing. Uh, it was first announced in 2015 while I was still living in China, and now it's already sort of on its way. It's supposed to be all the things that Beijing isn't green and sustainable and uncongested and human-scaled and highly walkable. Uh, it is touted as a truly smart city, and it's loaded up with sensors and all powered by AI and all digitized. So today on Seneca, we are talking all things Xiongnan, uh, why it's being built, uh, what it's supposed to represent, and what it tells us about China's ideas about itself and about the future. Xiongnan, writes my guest today, has been conceived and designed as a tangible, living representation of Xi's new era, a bold vision for a China confident that it has found its own path to modernity based on its own system and values. That guest is Andrew Stolkols. He's a PhD researcher at MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. He's lived in Beijing, in Seoul, in Singapore, and today he joins us from Bangkok. Andrew writes about cities, geopolitics, and urban technology. And a few weeks ago, he published a terrific piece in The China Project about Xiongnan. If you'd like to read it, it's called China's Techno-Natural Utopia, a deep dive into Xiongnan. And we will put a link to that, obviously, on the podcast page. Andrew Stokholz, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So, Andrew, let us dispense with some of the basics first about Xiongnan. I mentioned that it's 100 kilometers southish from Beijing, and that puts it wait, about half that distance from Baoding. But what was already there when the project was announced? Yeah, so the project was officially announced in 2017 uh, by the state council and three counties, Shongxian, Anxin, and Rongchang, these three basically rural county towns around the Bayangdian wetlands mm -hmm. were created as a Shongnan new area. So as you mentioned, it uh, was part of Baoding, city um, and is basically a mostly rural uh, area, but with several villages and with some uh, existing industries uh, and sort of small scale manufacturing, that kind of thing. Hmm. Hmm. So not a whole ton there. Not uh, wetlands, though. That's 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 interesting. So they're building a city in wetlands. Yeah. So the Bayangdian wetlands, uh, actually one of the lowest points in North China. So it's called, uh, going back uh, decades, known as the kidneys of North China. Mm one of the sort of ecological pearls of the region, but also one of the lowest elevation areas of the region. So that's one of the challenges in the sense of building a city in a, in a low-lying area. Yeah. Obviously prone to flooding and those kind of risks, but not a lot there in terms of uh, existing industry 
Um, so in a sense, a, a blank slate in, in, a sort of, in a sense, or at least conce- conceived of as a blank slate. Okay. So what is the basic plan? I mean, I know that it's being launched in a few different stages, but uh, what is the current focus right now? What are they building? Yeah. So after 2017, it took a couple of years for large-scale construction to really get underway. During the pandemic, the main part of construction was this Rongdong district, which is essentially resettlement housing. So the first stage of the city was basically resettlement housing for the villagers whose villages were demolished to make way for the rest of the city. And that, having been mostly completed that first phase, now the general kind of construction phase right now is on the main core district of the city, the Chibu district, which is this sort of core uh, central business district. And so some of the large scale enterprises uh, where mostly state-owned enterprises are building offices and headquarters are actually under construction currently. So this is sort of the beginning, I would say, of the main, you know, part of Shaman or what's planned as the main uh, core area of the city. So I remember in my uh, last few years in Beijing, there was a lot of talk about actually moving the capital. They had talked about it. Uh, and then when Shaman came along, I think a lot of the idea was that a lot of these sort of non-essential administrative bureaucracies would get moved out of Beijing along with a lot of SOEs. Yeah. So what is going to be moving there currently under the plan? And, and what's the intended size of the city in terms of its population yeah. once it's done? Yeah. So when I was I was also in Beijing in the early 2000s, and I, there was talk about sort of the capital, there was the moving of the municipal offices to Tongzhou, and then there was talk about mm-hmm. Baoding becoming a sort of secondary capital. But I think the specifics of the plan emerged after the Jingjinji coordinated development plan for the region was announced in 2015. And then in 2017, Shonan was actually chosen as the site. Um, and so, yeah, the idea was to relocate non-essential, non-capital functions from the city, which mostly seem to be at a central large SOEs, which wouldn't necessarily be central ministries, but, but state-owned enterprises. And so I think the idea was to relocate pressure off Beijing, relocate some of the population pressure and convince people to relocate to the city. And also, I think historically, there's been a lot of concern. I found documents going back into the 80s and even earlier talking about the unbalanced development. And so, you know, if you look at the northern region of Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei, comparison to say the Yangtze River Delta or the Pearl River Delta, uh, it's the lesser developed of those megapolitan regions. So this Jingjinji plan has been conceived of for quite a while in terms of how do we integrate the capital better with the surrounding area because Beijing uh, and Tianjin are large cities in China, but they don't necessarily have uh, a lot of spin-offs or subsidiary industries, such as the smaller cities of the Yangtze River Delta, the smaller cities, the Pearl River Delta, which form more of a city cluster or a city region system. So there was, yeah. how do we create that in Shanghai? I think, or how do we create that in Northern China? I think that was the thinking behind the plan. And I think in terms of the scale of the city, I've seen statistics basically talking for about 3 million plan population. Um, I mean, mm. there's currently over, I think a million people, if you count the existing residents of the county towns and all the villages. Um, so I think it'd be, you know, almost like doubling the existing population and bringing in more population, uh, educated workers, you know, service workers, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Three million. Yeah. And uh, when is that, is that intended to be, what what year do they think they're going to so be at that, at that point? The first phase of uh, city's construction is supposed to actually be 2035, which actually coincides with this near-term development milestone of Communist Party and sort of making China into a, I think the announcement was at the Party Congress, they have achieved sort of this Shao Kang Shivei, you know, moderately prosperous society, and that now over the next 15 or so years, 
uh, China would become like a developed socialist country. So actually, the, the city is supposed to be reaching that point at 2035, and then probably by 2050, which actually coincides with 100 years or so of new China, that the city would be a you know, fully developed, uh, innovative, global city, basically. Yeah. But <laughs> so if I live to see it, yeah, thousand-year project. <laughs> So one of the things that, that seems to have already been completed is the high-speed rail station. It looks like, I'm looking at it on maps, it's about eight kilometers or so northeast of the new district, yeah. the center of the new district. From the air, if you look at it, it's it's completely covered in photovoltaic arrays. There's some videos you can check out on YouTube, rather breathless videos about it, but it is pretty impressive. It is said to look like a dewdrop on a lotus leaf or <laughs> clear water rippling in a pond. But to me, it actually looks like a silicon wafer. Yeah. Other friends of mine have said that too. I think that might be deliberate. It's really kind of a cool design. Anyway, what do we know about that, that high-speed rail station? Yeah, the high-speed rail station was the first major project to be completed, and it was really sort of a symbol of the city. And like a lot of high-speed rail stations in China, this uh, station is actually being built on sort of a periphery of Shoman, which is unusual because Shoman doesn't really exist yet. So you would think it's actually quite easy to orient the city around its station, but this station is actually planned. There's a, a separate commercial cluster that's planned around this station, which is actually separate from the, the main part of the city. The reason for that, I believe, is that the Shoman railway station lies on this main north-south line between uh, the existing high-speed rail line between Beijing and uh, Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And so the idea was that also there would be another line connecting from Tianjin east-west that would then pass through the Shang'an railway station and then into the central part of Shang'an. So there's sort of, the, the city itself is almost conceived of through these transportation corridors. And so once you have these corridors in place, that sort of determined where uh, the city would be built and then around sort of a high-street rail station. Hmm. And also it allows quick connections to Beijing and also a new line from Beijing South Railway Station, the existing high-speed rail terminus, and also from Daxing Airport. So Daxing Airport was this new airport that's opened almost on the border of Hebei Province, south of Beijing, as the city's second major airport. Uh, so Shoman is is uh, quite close to Daxing Airport, and that in that sense would allow the city to have international links and convenient transportation to the airport as well. I'm really hoping I fly into Daxing this time because uh, I'm kind of sick of T3, but <laughs> I would love to see it. I, have, I haven't seen Daxing Airport in person yeah. yet. Yeah, so me neither. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. You know, when I, I read a little passage from that piece of yours in the intro, and I, I think you, you really put your finger exactly on what the underlying motivations are for this massive project. I, I think it really is intended as a showcase for or an embodiment of these various elements of Xi Jinping uh, thought and uh, the current party's ideas, right? Uh, yeah. So we're going to, I mean, for the next, I don't know, <laughs> most of the rest of the show, uh, break down what those ideas are and talk about how they're manifested in Xiong'an. But first, maybe we can talk about the the very idea of Chinese cities as expressions of political ideas. Right. Cities in China have often served that purpose. I mean, I think of Chang'an, you know, the capital during the Tang dynasty, where Xi'an is, of course, today, uh, even Beijing under the Mongols. I mean, they're very much cosmologically designed to be, you know, sort of in, in harmony with, with Chinese ideas about, about rulership. Right. The Forbidden City itself, I mean, you know, the whole idea of sort of the Zhongzhou, the sort of axes uh, 
cities under Mao's time as well. I mean, as you talk about in your piece. Yeah. Can you get into that a little bit? Talk about cities as expressions of political ideas. Yeah, well, one of the first courses I took in uh, in college actually at Berkeley, which got me interested in, in China in general, was a comparative course on, on China in Rome uh, by a guy named David Johnson. So he talked- Oh, about, yeah, I had David Johnson. Yeah, so he talked a lot about uh, the differences in, in ancient Rome and ancient China, right? And so that was one of the, the first things that got me motivated to study Chinese urban planning. And then I lived in Beijing shortly after that. So, you know, I've been interested in, in Chinese city planning traditions for quite a while. And I think when I looked at Shang'an, uh, it's easy to see it as, oh, it was just simply another uh, rendering, another glossy new area. China's built a lot of these new districts over the last few decades. And a lot of countries are building new cities. But there was something different about this city to me that struck a chord because it seemed like there was a lot of meaning invested in it, a lot of national meaning, a lot of sort of cultural intentions invested in it. And so that made me think that there's something going on here, which, okay, maybe it's not just another new area, or maybe it is, right? But I think in terms of the plan itself, the east-west axes, the central quarter, it looked very much actually almost like a, a mirror of Beijing. And when you look at a lot of new cities, they're often mirrors of existing messy cities, right? So if you think about Brasilia, it was sort of the antithesis of Rio de Janeiro. Sure. And so utopian modernist thinking about new cities oftentimes is sort of postulated the new city as a solution to the existing city's problems. So that was the immediate, actually, uh, impetus, I believe, for Shaman in the early 2000s. You know, as a former resident of Beijing, you uh, dealt with the apocalypse and all those kind of issues. And I think there was a oh, lot yeah. of talk of the Changshi Bing or the sort of big Da Changshi Bing or the big city disease in policy discourse around the time. So the idea was that the way to solve that would be to create a new city so that Beijing wouldn't be spreading outward like a pancake, because I think sometimes in the discourse to the policy documents use this term, big pancake, so that, that development would be channeled and controlled. And the obvious uh, other precedent in terms of historical thinking, I mean, you could go back very long in terms of Chinese urban history, but immediately what it would be Shenzhen, kind of uh, right. precedent for China's reform and opening urban development under Deng Xiaoping. So Shenzhen it was you know a special economic zone, we all sort of familiar probably with Shenzhen's position or importance to China's economic opening. And Shenzhen is talked about as the uh, third, you know, new area of national significance after Shenzhen and then Pudong, uh, which was mm-hmm. uh, sort of Jiang's special uh, economic zone to boost Shanghai uh, in the 1990s. So, so Shenzhen is talked about as the third um, kind of national new area, national significant new area and very much tied to Xi Jinping's um, political tenure as China's you know, most powerful uh, leader in a long time, uh, perhaps since Mao. So I think you're right, Chinese cities, uh, traditions of city building often are that the, the new dynasty would build a new capital somewhere, which is very different from, say, ancient Rome, right, which maintained itself as, as Rome, even though many different dynasties came, polities came and went around Rome. The city itself was actually relatively... Um, you know, constant in a sense, right? The eternal city. Um, Beijing is obviously has a long history as well, but various dynasties have obviously left their their different uh, sort of you know impact on on that city uh, from the Ming and then the Qing, where they're building the you know outer wall of Beijing. So I think uh, I think that's true that that leaders have have looked to city building as a way to leave legacies uh, in China. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what some of the facets are of, of the Xi Jinping legacy yeah. that uh, he intends to build into it. Uh, maybe we can start with this idea of quality growth. I mean, yeah. quality is something that's been emphasized since the 19th Party Congress in 2017, yeah. and Beijing has held up this this third new area, as you say, of national significance. They've said Xiong'an is 
like sort of the the successor to Shenzhen yeah. and, and to Pudong. Shenzhen was all about speed, yeah. right? Shenzhen, Shenzhen speed. Yeah. Not really sure what Pudong was all about. <laughs> But uh, uh, but but what is this phrase shogad quality? What does yeah. that mean? Well, um, you know, actually, if you go back to the mid two thousands, even before Sean was announced, you know, there are a lot of. Uh, I think it was twenty sixteen when when they announced this. Uh, I think she sort of personally critiqued weird architecture. Right, there was a sort of right. beginning of that uh, criticism of the avant garde Western architecture, like the CCTV building or the giant, uh, the Opera Hall Hall in the center of Tiananmen. So there's this beginning of a, a sense that China's breakneck growth has sort of led to a cultural or spiritual pollution, right? And, and you've uh, talked about this, I think, with Wang Huning's writing on culture and, and the idea that the party was sort of losing track of culture. And I think you could think about that in an urban sense, too, that Shenzhen and the reform and opening up ushered in a very sort of rapid, breakneck, chaotic pace or chaotic model of urbanization. And the party began to see that as sort of something that needed to be controlled and, and, and really uh, modified. So you had the new type urbanization plan that was issued in 2014, uh, which is a general call for a more sort of balanced, coordinated approach to development. You know, cities like Shanghai and Shenzhen had gotten rich first and, and you, needed to, you need to sort of balance that with the rest of the country and also sort of control pollution and control the runaway conversion of arable land, farmland. So all these sort of basically negative externalities, you could say, of market-oriented urbanism were part of the ills that, that she, I think, diagnosed as problems, not just with urbanization, but with the governance system as well. So I think, but urbanization, right, was, was such a big part of the development story in China. And so Shang'an yeah. really aims to sort of create something slightly different to this breakneck model of urbanization that you had under Don or in the decades after Shenzhen. So it reflects this idea of, of, it used to be sort of GDP uber alles, and now the the emphasis is on high quality growth, right? So yeah, it's, it's very much the same, you know, as the macro macroeconomic principle. Yeah, that and also that I think quality of life had become quite a political issue. So if you could, if the party could provide the high quality of urban life, reduce pollution, and also provide good jobs, that would be an important source of legitimacy. But just in terms of the urban design. Early on in the city, there were talk about, you know, limiting skyscraper construction. So having no skyscrapers, having no, um, you know, sort of uh, gated communities. So she had also spoke out against gated communities and there were guidance uh, that were trying to open up gated communities in China because these were also symbols of socioeconomic inequality. So that was another thing that was talked about in Chang'an, smaller block sizes. Um, now, how that's actually happening remains to be seen, but that was the intent. That was sort of the ideology behind it, that the city would be a green city, a smart city. Those are all buzzwords, maybe internationally. But then those buzzwords just sort of adjusted to the Chinese political discourse, and they take on sort of some greater significance, I think, within, within China's system. Right. And the, the word now in, in China is, of course, ecological civilization. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ecological so civilization was, I think, around before, uh, during the Hu Jintao period, but she has really yeah, continued it yeah. and promoted it. And uh, of course, Shaman is, is talked about as a model or template of ecological civilization and the idea of actually improving the environment first before the city's construction is built. So a lot of the news and, and publicity about the city in the first few years I was following it was that, uh, oh, the Bayangdian wetlands have been restored, uh, pollution was reduced. And of course, how they did this, while well, they shut down a lot of factories, a lot of the existing small cottage industries in these towns surrounding the wetlands, so of course, 
the pollution would be reduced. And there were other sort of more large-scale ecological remediation efforts going on and still going on. So that's part of the symbolic value is that, okay, we can develop and we can also improve the environment at the same time that those things are not in conflict. Right, right, right. So let's talk about what some of the measures are that that they intend to build into the city itself. They say 70% of it is supposed to be reserved for green areas. It is being built in the wetlands area, so there's a real emphasis on the sponge city concept. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, and uh, and of course, on a low carbon footprint. I'm not sure what the energy mix is supposed to be, but I, I think they're, they're making use of geothermal. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, like that huge solar array on top of the new high-speed rail. You yeah. Know. Uh, there's there's going to be so, solar arrays everywhere and a lot of wind piped in from, from Zhangjiakou. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the yeah. signature projects that I wrote about in the piece was this power station, uh, which is developed by China State Grid, and, and it's uh, right, bringing power from wind farms in, in northern part of Hebei province. Um, but the building itself, when I, when I was reading a lot of the um, sort of media coverage of these different buildings, the way that they talk about these buildings does suggest a sort of uh, symbolic uh, showpiece, you know, um, sort of purpose for them because this power station, power converter station has a swimming pool in it. Um, it has a garden <laughs> on the roof. And I, I was just thinking, well, why would you need a swimming pool and a, and a power converter? So I'd never heard of anything like that before. Um, really funky stuff. And so I think like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this is really a renewable, you know, uh, innovation in a sense. And I think a lot of the companies investing in Sharon are, are these large state-owned utilities, right? So Huanang, State Grid, different infrastructure companies. And so I think in that sense, positioning Sharon as promoting a certain type of innovation in, in domestically facing industries, power generation, those kind of things is, is another purpose of the city. So I think they talk about obviously the city getting 90% of its energy from renewable sources, geothermal, that kind of thing. And there's also contradictions as well. Of course, there's the creation of a new mining giant that's supposed to be headquartered in the city. Mm. But I think in general, this is this is the goal of Sean is to try to be a symbol of green energy, less energy intensive development. It's also supposed to be a largely car free city. Uh, automobile traffic is to be shunted underground as it enters the city. Is is my understanding, and that above ground you're just going to have you know these fully autonomous cabs you know electric so, cabs yeah so i is think that right well i think there's uh there was talk of putting all transportation underground i actually spoke to a planner who uh, works in china was was familiar with some of this was saying that was the initial idea of planners and actually mm-hmm. at one point she rejected these ideas as too kind of fantastic and too crazy so i think some of these ideas actually were talked about right now there's something called the Disha guanlong or basically these underground utility corridors which are being built under the main roads of the city and these are supposed to channel mm-hmm. all of the utilities in large uh like easily accessible tunnels for for maintenance and also deliveries of packages or the logistics corridor so that logistics package delivery could happen underground but the surface roads are built uh, in a sense on you know on the ground but then also being connected to AI, 5G, uh, a lot of the experiments right now with autonomous vehicles and Shaman, I think, are trying to create this uh, autonomous driving system in the city. But so far, I don't know how much of that is actually borne fruit in terms of actual you know, solutions, but I think that's something that they're working towards is using this uh, embedding digital infrastructure in the city from the ground up. Uh, right, yeah. right, right. Hopefully including sensors. I mean, there was this idea that when I was working at Baidu, 
that Andrew Ng was really pushing uh, yeah. that rather than having fully autonomous vehicles uh, that were independent of, of the infrastructure, yeah. that they should build sensors into, you know, and build, you know, transmitters into the infrastructure itself and to train the terrain rather than to tr just train the cars. That's right. Um, yeah. Anyway, that, that, that would be very cool. Yeah. There's even um, talk of an intelligent expressway. I think the, the new expressway connecting Shangan to Beijing actually having 5G capacity installed so that cars sort of driving on the highway would be able to communicate with each other, but you have to embed this in the roadway itself. So like you said, it's, it's part of the infrastructure. Yeah, no, that would be, that would be outstanding. I'd love to see that. There is also electrified rail link that, that links all the different villages in the outlying area, but uh, just focused on, on the city itself. Uh, I think the idea is that it's going to be a 15 minute city, as yeah. I say, it's sort of like uh, yeah. parts of Paris, they talk about where all the sorts of day-to-day -day services that one requires, everything from education and daycare and shopping and, 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 of course, your employment is all 15 minutes walkable from your house. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's uh, the notion of the 15-minute city, which I think the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, was promoting a couple of years ago and uh, yeah. and in the UK recently became a kind of strange uh, conspiracy theory that, that this was kind of a socialist plot to get people to get out their cars. <laughs> Uh, but actually, I mean, it's not a, a very controversial idea in a sense, and it's the, the neighborhood unit, uh, sort of urban planning concept's been around for a long time, the idea of creating self-sufficient communities, et cetera. Um, I grew up in a new town myself, Irvine, California, and so that oh, uh, yeah. city was based around these villages, you know, basically centered around schools, shopping centers, but all car or dominant. And so Shoman, you know, borrows some of those ideas. The interesting thing I mentioned in the piece as well, but the way that this is talked about in Shaman, the 15-minute city, they call it these 15-minute life clusters, Shenghuo, life circles, Shenghuo Zhan. Yeah. And they also talk about that as being centered on like Shuchu or community facilities. Uh, so I think one thing, I don't know how far this will be actually developed in Shaman or if this is unique to Shaman, but there's been talk, uh, you know, I think of uh, in other cities in China, this complete communities, similar kind of idea. For my perspective, it seems like a sort of reimagination of the Danway system in a sense, not entirely. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how far that will go. And it, it's a bit speculative, I think. But I think there's part, partly this this notion in Xi Jinping's ideological world of, of embedding more control into society, not through necessarily of coercive means, but really providing more social infrastructure, um, dealing with some of these social, you know, discontent, uh, lack of sort of culture, these kind of things. Um, the talk, the, the urban design guidelines on shaman talk about creating a new shaman person with you know artistic uh, qualities and and so sort of the suger you know discourse of, of quality. <laughs> so there really is some of that in in the plan now. Again, I don't know what to, entirely to make of it. Um, the person I spoke with, actually a, a friend of mine who'd worked in shaman, said that the the resettlement housing hadn't been able to really implement these new urban design features because it was just done very quickly to resettle yeah. villagers, but possibly in the next phase of development, they will start to uh, build some of those out. So we talked about how ecological civilization actually predated okay. Xi Jinping. Uh, there are other elements in this that, that also come before, and a lot of them have to do with the sort of digitization, the smart city aspects of yeah. of Xi'an, things like Internet Plus and informatization. These things have been around for a very long time. Yeah. Um, it's all very integral, though, to what Xiong'an wants to be. Uh, when when we talk about Xiong'an as a smart city, what are we talking about here? What what are the elements of it that would make it smart? Not just traffic lights that are yeah. you know, coordinated with, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, the smart city is one of these concepts in urban planning that just sort of won't uh, go away. Uh, but no one's yeah. ever really sure exactly what it means. And sometimes people ask me to give a definition of it, and I'm also unable to give one single definition. But I think the general idea, it actually comes from this, if you want to go even further back into the, like, the history of cybernetics and the idea of regulating complex systems, thinking of cities as systems that need to be regulated through feedback loops of information, that's the general idea of smart cities. So I think the uh, traffic, you know, if you look at um, cities like Hangzhou or Alibaba has uh, helped roll out this uh, sort of traffic management system using a huge network of cameras, surveillance, but also AI to manage traffic flows. So the idea is that, you know, system control of, say, traffic infrastructure or traffic lights is all automated through uh, feedback from cameras. And then this stuff sort of happens autonomously. But the other image we have of smart cities is this control room, sort of a giant room of screens, you know, with someone managing, I think Rio de Janeiro has one of these control centers that became an emblem of smart cities. So there's something of, of control and managing, integrating lots of different systems uh, into control. But again, some of this uh, has been really fallen out of favor, I would say, in the urban planning field in the US. Uh, and so that's mm-hmm. another part of my uh, broader interest, research interest is looking at how the sort of smart city imaginary has been uh, become a national development imaginary in, in a lot of countries in Asia particularly. So I think in China, right, like uh, Alibaba is one company that's doing a lot of this. They have a... The city brain. Yeah, the city brain. And they're, the building in Chang'an that I mentioned in the piece, the city brain or supercomputing cloud center, I think Alibaba is still a consultant or a partner on this project, but actually the Chang'an group, which is the company set up to build uh, Chang'an, the state... Enterprise, essentially, the city development company, is right now the main builder of this project. So I think there is also some effort, and not just in Chang'an, but nationally, to sort of standardize the smart city standards and infrastructure in China, because, again, goes with the theme of the broader crackdown on the growing power of these tech companies, is that the data they have, the the management capacity, the infrastructural capacity these companies have, uh, has been also partly seen as a threat to the party's power, in a sense. And so Chang'an represents from my perspective, a way to kind of use some of these technologies, but also control them more and 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 implement them more on a sort of governing scale uh, from the ground up in the city. So one of the phrases that they mention in news articles on Chang'an is that it's three cities, Sanzuo uh, Chang, I think. So it's like the city underground, the city on the ground, and then the city in the cloud. So they're building a hmm. the digital twin of the city as they construct the city. So like every piece of rebar, every uh, material that's put into a building, they create a digital copy of it and have this sort of digital twin of the city that's supposed to facilitate maintenance, supposed to also facilitate driving, uh, having a precise knowledge of where everything is in the city. So I think there's part of this sort of fantasy of control, having a, the whole city is basically unknown as, and digitally and physically, um, which would, I guess, be a smart city in some ways. But I think there's debate about, about what smartness is and how uh, important all those things are, but also very subjective in a sense. <laughs> I can just imagine how James Scott grinds his teeth when he reads about this, though. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. I want—I do want to ask you about that in a little bit, but um, <laughs> I can also imagine that you know, uh, hearing about this digital twin of the city, there are a lot of people who work in metaverse who are thinking, <laughs> "Oh my God, this will make our job really easy." <laughs> um, I'm put in mind when you, you talk about the feedback loops and things like that. Uh, a conversation I had with Josh Chin about his book. Uh-huh. Uh, about you know the surveillance state and he yeah. talks about cybernetics and and the whole sort of origins of a lot of this technocratic thinking when it comes to to uh, 
urban planning and how that underpins a lot of the surveillance state as it's as it's you know developed in China. Uh, this 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 sounds like this whole idea is just sort of on steroids, and, yeah. and it just it's such a contrast with where Western thinking is right now. Yeah. Again, something that I'll want to get to before we do that, and, and that that's what's next. But I, I want to ask you about. Uh, the digital yuan, right. how this is supposed to be sort of a proving ground for, for that as well. They had, you know, rolled it out in Shenzhen and some other communities in, in the Pearl River Delta. Supposedly, these, these tests have been pretty successful. Um, do you know what's in store for that, the digital yuan? Yeah, well, I've been trying to find out a little bit about that. And I think I was initially curious, why do you need a new city to test out a digital currency? What's the significance of having a city being a test bed for the digital yuan? So Shonan's one of the test bed cities of the digital yuan. I believe Shenzhen and a few other large cities are as well. But in Shonan, what I've seen is that there's been talk or, or sort of discussion of different use cases. So for example, workers in Shonan have had their salaries transmitted quickly and immediately using digital yuan blockchain currency, central bank uh, digital currency. And then mm. also you could use the digital yuan to pay for city services, to pay taxes. There's an automated tax payment center that was built in the uh, Shonan Citizen Service Center quite early on. That was actually the first complex to be constructed in Shonan. So I think the digital yuan in this context is a part of this effort in Shonan to really convey this image that, that services, that government services are being modernized and streamlined. And that, um, you know, right, the party and the government is still central, but that the image of governance is being modernized. And so I think the, the digital UN uh, can sort of incentivize people to, to switch to that, right? I think the digital UN, I don't know what the uptake is. Currently, it's probably pretty small in general. Um, right. And most people are quite, you know, willing to use Alibaba and WeChat Pay and all those things. But if the government could have uh, the centrally that digital currency, they'd have a window into all these transactions going on that could monitor the economy in real time. The amount of data that you could collect from that is, is probably quite staggering, but incentivizing adoption, I think, depends on uh, making it more convenient or more attractive for people to use it. So I think there's some thinking in Shonan about how do you tie the digital UN into like daily transactions within the city and sort of different uh, aspects of urban life in the city that require payments and that kind of thing, utility payments, this sort of thing. Yeah. So, Andrew, we've looked at some of the ways in which Xi Jinping's ideas and, and you know, modern Chinese Communist Party ideology maps onto these plans for Xiongan. Uh, but one feature of this, of the, the new ideology, and I would say maybe its most essential feature, is this uh, emphasis on Chineseness. That, this, there's this sort of uh, ethno-nationalist, if you want. I mean, maybe that's an extreme that. way of putting it, but... Uh, there, there's a, a very sort of culturally grounded idea. And uh, I, I wonder in what ways do you think Xiong'an is an expression of Chineseness? Is Xiong'an at all a, a distinctly Chinese project? Mm. Well, I think if you, uh, the, the plan, when I was reading the master plan itself, the talk about the architectural style should be, it says a combination of Western and Chinese, but with Chinese leading. Um, and so that's the official like concept in the master plan that's mentioned. Um, but if you look at the actual architecture in the city, a lot of it uh, doesn't necessarily look Chinese per se, but a lot of the landscaping features are what you'd think of as maybe stereotypically traditional Chinese garden architecture, pavilions, this sort of mm. thing. There's a wetland park. There's a, a suburban park that's already open in Chang'an that has pavilions from each of the cities in Hebei province, which I don't know how interesting that is for tourists, but... Uh, <laughs> sort of political statement of the city relationship to the province. But 
I think the landscaping features convey that. A lot of the buildings seem to be very generic, modern, contemporary architecture, but there definitely is a sort of, I would say, a subdued, rather classical style to the architecture that does contrast a lot with some of the exuberant uh, sort of weird architecture that you would see in other uh, last few decades. So I think there's some sort of cultural conservatism, uh, may not be particularly Chinese, but probably connected in a way to Xi Jinping's architectural preferences, which I think have sort of been known in a way from the last uh, from 10 years or a few years ago. And then I think there's also, in terms of the, the development model, there's talk about moving away from gated communities, but still the development is happening at this large course scale of development. So it's not, land isn't necessarily being developed by private owners, right? So land is, is controlled by the government in China and in most Chinese cities. This is a huge source of revenue. And that seems to me the same or even at even strengthened in a way in Chilean. But I think if you look at, like you were talking about the imperial cities and these kind of things, the axes, you know, these kind of like north-south, east-west orientations, those are all present in the way that Chilean is being built. But that's not particularly... I would say unique in terms of other um, cities and yeah, But still, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it it isn't uniquely Chinese, but it it also is Chinese. Yes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, you mentioned just now that that local governments have been overly dependent on on land sales. It's been the foundation of of their revenue, and uh, they're you know in fiscal straits uh, uh, because of of issues that they've had recently with yeah. developers. Xiongan wants to get away from this and. I'm I'm still I guess I'm not sure how yeah where would the yeah what's what's the plan there yeah that's also my question um at the time that John was founded they sort of put a moratorium on land sales in the three counties but that was in a way to reduce speculation because if they as soon as they declared this area a lot of the villagers in the in the area would rush to profit from the land suddenly becoming valuable but um, I don't know if you remember there was a joke um you know those marriage markets in in Beijing. Uh, the, the one guy, all, the only thing he had on his sign was "I own land in Shanghai." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my uh, colleague might actually send me a picture of a uh, apartment that's people's in Beijing with signs promoting, uh, you know, new apartments in Shanghai. But the price is like extremely cheap compared to most cities in China, like uh, three thousand yuan per square meter or something. Which wow! Is oh my god, quite, I'm going to buy one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so also, you know, in the early years when I, so I talked to one of the people I've spoken with who's directly sort of involved is a, um, someone I knew who would, uh, was a graduate of Peking University and worked for one of the developers in Shaman. He actually lived there for a few years, was telling me that there were discussions and in, in sort of the early years he was there, he's no longer working in Shaman, but that they were discussing what kind of housing model to adopt. Would it be something like the Singapore model where housing would be provided? These large state-owned developers, China Merchants, Poly Group, uh, these SOE developers are the main ones who've built a lot of the housing so far. But you're right, right? If you're not selling the land to private developers, then then where's the financing coming from? There's talk about a new model, but it's still very vague about what that all means. I haven't been able to dig too much into the details of it, just being not being in China. But I think there's been a lot of bond is- issuance, so a lot of the, the financing is coming from. Basically, just the central banks, the, the top, the big four banks, China Development Bank, um, special purpose bonds, which have become more popular for cities as a way to finance infrastructure, have been used as so sort of these longer term bonds for specific projects. But I think the the long term goal is that land finance is not a sustainable model for for Chinese urbanization. Again, I don't know if they how to figure out a way to move to a more sustainable tax system where you basically just tax 
land or, or property on a more recurring, sustainable basis. So far, it's been politically difficult to implement that kind of system. Right. Uh, and land is still the sort of uh, very quick uh, fix for a lot of city governments. But yeah, I think that's that's a big question of China. And sort of one reason why I'm interested in Chang'an and have been interested in following, because I think it, the city has a lot of interesting sort of uh, window onto these contradictions or these dip dilemmas facing China's development. For sure. So, Andrew, how would you characterize the way that Xiong'an has been written about thus far in the English language press outside of China? Obviously? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why I wanted to write these couple articles, and it, you know, I've been following the city from afar for the last couple of years, almost uh, as a kind of way of, of keeping abreast with what's going on in China, because I started my PhD during COVID and was uh, initially hoping to do some research in China, but that became difficult. And so i been following the city for a while, but uh, really hadn't seen a lot of coverage recently. I'd spoken to people about it, different actually experts at, at Chinese professors at Harvard and MIT who heard about it, but it, mainly from, from their context, oh, it's it's so far it's been a failure. And I was curious, well, how has it been a failure? I think the, the media or the, you know, there's sort of a tendency to see these new city projects as maybe sort of a folly of authoritarianism or something like that. Right. Um, but as I followed what was going on, I said, well, I saw, well, they're still building everything. They're still, like, things are still going ahead. They're still pouring money into the place. So at the very least, it's worth following to sort of see what's going on. And I know I have my doubts about the, the merits of this sort of new city concept in the middle of a, a low-lying wetland to begin with. But you know, on the other hand, it's not a whole lot different from what a lot of countries have done. Uh, Malaysia built a new capital city. Korea, South Korea built a new administrative city you know, the new cities in the, in the mid 20th century. So it's not qualitatively, it's, it's a different scale perhaps, but it's not necessarily different from some of those large national new scale projects. But I think there has been a tendency to view it as a, as a folly. I've, I've, some of the Chinese language media, like, you know, obviously the, the media inside China is mostly talking about it in positive terms and it's hard to know how accurate that media is, but it's also hard to know some of this um, English language coverage, how how accurate it is, and, and maybe they're missing the sort of forest for the trees, so to speak, is that even if it is a kind of crazy project, which it might be, but it's still going ahead, and it's still, um, it seems to be taking a lot of investment from the central government. I think a lot of the narrative has to be informed by this whole ghost cities idea that was so widely reported on. Yeah. Uh, but usually, I have to say, with, with very little follow-on. So yeah. there is still this assumption, for example, that, you know, <laughs> Zhengzhou, new area, which was, right. I guess, like the poster child for the supposed Chinese white elephant projects from 10, yeah. 12 years ago. Uh, it's actually, it has very, very high rates of occupancy yeah. and, and actually more people than was originally projected. Yeah. Uh, I'm not just saying that, you know, because my family is originally from Hunan. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are a lot, not a lot of people who were aware yeah. of of this about, you know, there's not a lot of media outlets who have actually eaten humble pie or, yeah. you know, uh, have, have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we were kind of wrong about that. Yeah. I mean, it's like Jeremy likes to talk about on the podcast how, you know, there were all these people who were just dissing this idea of the subway expansion in China or even the building of the Fifth Ring Road, which is now a parking lot. Yeah. And then, you know... <laughs> The subways, the, the, you know, these empty subways. They, oh, nobody's going to ride this thing. And then, yeah. you know, two days later, it, you're just sardines in there. Yeah. But, uh, right. I think uh, yeah. it's a difficult sell for people from Beijing. I've t spoken to some Beijing residents who sort of don't know much about it or are sort of curious about it, but not really sure what's going on and, and not really that interested in moving to Shaman. But, um, you know, for people from second or third tier cities, I mean, there's a huge uh, youth unemployment problem, as we know. 
um, you know, providing these sort of opportunities in Chang'an may not be a, a terrible idea, definitely from a political sense. Um, 100,000 workers were employed, I think, last couple of years at the peak of construction of this uh, first phase of Chang'an. So it's a massive public works project just in that regard. But I think the key question will be, in terms of its goals as an innovative city, as a model for innovation, how innovative will it be? What kind of companies will be attracted to, to work there? You you worked for, I do previously, right? They were talked about as a partner. They were talked about as investing in Chang'an. But right now, most of the investment seems to be coming from SOEs, from large central mm-hmm. SOEs. When I think that some of the discourse or, or conventional wisdom in Western writing about SOEs is that they're not innovative, they're inefficient, they don't use capital very well, and they need to be restructured. But uh, and Shoan seems to be sort of suggesting that she thinks of SOEs really as a driver of innovation. And so that includes some of these large power companies, utility companies. We don't think about them as technology giants, but they are trying to deploy more high-tech innovations in those sectors. So in a sense, Shoman is a model in a way of a sort of infrastructure innovation city. And perhaps, you know, I mean, given China's ability or, or interest in projecting that ca- capacity globally, it could have that function as a sort of showroom, not just for China, but also for countries to sort of, oh, look at what you can kind of purchase, you know, if you, you this is what sort of Chinese infrastructural capacity can develop. But again, uh, yeah. all that is is maybe too early to speculate on. <laughs> so I, I mentioned, you know, that, that James Scott would be grinding his teeth as he reads about this. Um, you know, the, the author of Seeing Like a State uh, talks about the, you know, authoritarian folly. He talks he's very down on planned cities, yeah. um, you know, you know, Brasilia, right? This is just the sort of planned, top-down, you know, intended to make society legible to the state kind of project that he, he just hates. Yeah, um, it, but it strikes me that, that like this kind of a project, something on this scale animated by this particular vision, it it still happens in yeah. some places of the world. But outside of East and Southeast Asia, you mentioned, you know, uh, South Korea and, and, and Malaysia. Right. But outside of, of South, East and Southeast Asia, you, you only have like, you know, the UAE, Dubai, yeah. and, and maybe other places there. Um, it's kind of unthinkable. It just reminds me of, of this interview that I did years ago with this woman named Anna Greenspan, right. who's a, a philosopher, who wrote a book called Shanghai Future, um, uh, Modernity Remade or something like that. I mean, the future remade. I can't remember what the subtitle of it was. Yeah. Shanghai Future, a really good book. And it, she talked about this distinct Chinese mindset when it comes to futurity, about how you know China is still one place where you can still talk without embarrassment, without irony yeah. about technologically enhanced future. I, it sounds like you're familiar with this book. Yeah, I, I haven't read it, I don't think, but I've, I've heard of it and I'm from, yeah, familiar with it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely worth a read. Yeah. So do you think that there's something to this? Do you think that there is like a different relationship with, with technology in the future in China that makes this sort of thing still possible? I mean, I can't even imagine if the United States endeavored yeah. to do something like this, how much popular criticism it would, it would come in yeah. for. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you look back, I, I, I sort of, without any real scientific reason, sort of trace it to the 1960s in the U.S. and sort of rejection of modernism. I mean, you know, the rejection of uh, Robert Moses and, and the sort of Moses, Jane Jacobs yeah. approach in New York, um, sort of, you know, opposition to top-down planning and, and more cynicism about, about technology in a way. And I think that's certainly not the case in China, um, at least not for now. Uh, and I think there is sort of a, an ambition and a, and a capacity to to reimagine that. Um, 
but I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious really, you know, I, I'm quite eager to visit Sean because I, I'm sort of like struck by the differences of opinion, even, even from people in China. I mean, I don't think everyone in China is there. There's plenty of skeptics in China also about, about the project, um, maybe not about technology innovation, but I think it's seen as a political project too. So I think that will be a question of how much legitimacy Sean will have. Uh, if So if there's political changes going forward, uh, will future leaders be committed to or, or forced to kind of continue investing in it uh, in the way that Shenzhen sort of took on self-fulfilling momentum afterwards? Uh, but I think mm-hmm. for now, there's definitely a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of focus on high-tech innovation in China as, as a you know means to national power. And that's been a, something that's been a part of political discourse for a while. And so Sean is uh, definitely a part of that uh, in that sense. And I think that's um, you'll probably see continued investment in the city. Uh, at this point, it's it's sort of too big to fail. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think the general sort of approach to and and one of the the more striking things about a lot of the buildings in Chang'an that I've been looking at is this uh, fusion of technology and nature. So what I called in the piece techno naturalism. Mm. You know, I think uh, sustainability and conservation debate in, in the U.S. is often sort of framed in this like binary of um, you know, we need to anti-technical. Protect, yeah, protect wild spaces, conserve. You know, I think um, there's there's been sort of an emphasis on that, uh, sort of the unspoiled aspect of nature. Whereas in China, I I don't know if you know others have sort of echoed this as well, but you know, na- the natural world and the human world. Maybe I mean, maybe it's a cliche to say that that that's a sort of lineage in Chinese thought, but um, yeah, ecological engineering, re re um, you know, moving the natural world around, so to speak, is not really seen as a as a taboo and and in fact sort of part of political legitimacy in China going back a long time. So I think right, ecological remediation, if it's done through this artificial tree planting or the shelter belt program in, in Inner Mongolia or the uh Beidiao, the North South Water Transfer Project, you know, these are all large scale ecological engineering projects, not seen to be really in conflict with the natural environment, but sort of uh, just engineering or re engineering of the natural environment. So yeah, I think that's that's something that that Sean really symbolizes, and the the buildings, this data center that's you know surrounded by a pool of water and supposed to be covered in trees. You know, like it, it can't get more like in your face as that that there's this high tech data center that's uh, basically the symbol of ecological you know, fusion with technology. Um, that building, you know, really struck me in that way as being uh, sort of this amazing. Uh, you know, sim- symbol essentially, and maybe there is actually a practical benefit to putting uh, servers underground, reducing the energy use and, and cooling. Um, mm-hmm. But that will be something to see. You know, in, in cities' development, is how much more these sort of symbolic projects are built and and how effective they are actually. Well, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you about Shungan because you know, just reading that what you've written about it, obviously you've reflected on it, you've thought about the sort of philosophical dimensions to what the city means, you've thought about, you know, the semiotics of it, you've thought about the aesthetics of it, and uh, it's been wonderful talking to you about Shungan. You're going there, you said, in about a month? I mean, if I'm there at the same time, let's try to hook up. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, and, uh, and, uh, I booked a hotel in the uh, the Wyndham, uh, the Wyndham Shaman, so we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if they honor my reservation. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll talk to you offline about the dates and yeah. we'll see if we can figure <laughs> but, uh, out. But I've, I've talked to some Chinese friends that are sort of like, oh, can you can you visit Sharon? Is it off limits? And I've been trying to arrange uh, contacts with some of the design institutes, uh, Tsinghua Design Institutes that were involved with it because um, we have some affiliation through um, my university. But uh, we'll see how much uh, how much access I actually am able to get. I think it's a, it's a very sensitive project, so there might be some... Uh, concerned about that but also i think it's uh, at this point it's 
be coming further along and, and maybe have something that, that people want to show. So maybe there's a, a reason to give more international attention to it. So we'll see. <laughs> Andrew Stokholz, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Once again, the piece that I, I referenced is called China's Techno-Natural Utopia, a deep dive into Xiong'an. Uh, Andrew's also written about Xiong'an in other publications, including in Foreign Policy. Definitely check out all of what he's written. We'll put links up to it. Um, meanwhile, uh, thank you very much, and I hope that I'll see you in Xiong'an. Thank you, Kaiser. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Let's move on to recommendations before I let you go. And uh, before we do that, just a quick reminder that the way to support the work that we're doing here at the Seneca Podcast and the China Project more generally is to subscribe to Access, uh, our, our daily newsletter. It's just fantastic. It's just been recently revamped. If you haven't, you know, check it out. Check it. It's really, it's it's so, so good. Of all the newsletters on China out there, it's definitely the one huh? that I read end to end every every day. All right, let's move on. Uh, recommendations. Andrew, what do you have for us? Yeah, so uh, a book that I actually just picked up, it's a bit academic, um, but it's called The Institutional Foundation of Economic Development by Shi Ping Tang. So it's actually... Uh, a Chinese professor from Fudan University. It's a critique of new institutional economics. So um, people like Asimoglu and uh, sort of political thinkers that have been talking about the importance of institutions. Um, so it's an interesting sort of critique, but also uh, analysis on what actually what institutions matter for different countries, different development stages. Um, has some interesting thoughts too on innovation uh, implications for. Uh, what he calls our sort of innovation advantage of democracies. And through some statistical analysis, is able to, I guess, sort of say that uh, innovation is one advantage maybe that democracies still have, but only at the, the later stage of growth. So I think it's an interesting uh, both challenge to certain sort of uh, mainstream thinking on institutional development and political development, but also um, has some specifics on the China case. But yeah. Oh, sounds good. A little academic, yeah. yeah that's never never put me <laughs> not off. For a, not for a beach read. <laughs> Maybe a long time. <laughs> well, I've got more of a beach read book yeah. to recommend. <laughs> uh, I I have been enjoying. I'm almost done with it now. Selwyn Rob. Uh, that's S E L W Y N. Rob is R double A B. Uh, his book Five Families about the history of the major New York crime families. Huh. You know, really from their origins in Sicily through you know prohibition all the way up to quite recently. Uh, I I actually I grew up. I don't know if anyone knows this. I grew up so the first twelve years of my life in this little, technically a hamlet, not even a town called Appalachian. Huh. Uh, it's in Tioga County in the southern tier of New York. It's about twenty miles, twenty minutes anyway, uh, west of Binghamton. Huh. Um, Right on the Pennsylvania border, but it, the only reason anyone might know of the, the hamlet of Appalachian uh, is that in 1957, there was a conclave of mob bosses that was held there or was to be held there. It, it actually got broken up before they actually they started really meeting. And, the, you know, there's all these scenes of mob bosses fleeing into the cornfields and throwing money um, anyway. I've always been really interested in in the mafia. Okay. And so. I've read a bunch of books, but this is by far the best one that I have come across. Rob is a former New York Times reporter. He writes very, very well and and just spins a great yarn. Um, I also happen to have heard a talk just the other day. Um, I've been going to the Rotary Club meetings here because they always bring in really fantastic speakers. And um, one of them... Uh, was a an attorney who was a federal prosecutor who who ended up uh you know working on the the John Gotti case uh, and 
got quite close to Sammy the Bull Gravano, um, who was, of course, instrumental in, in, in that, that trial. Uh, so she had some amazing stories to tell. And so I think it was fate demanding that, that I recommend this book, Five Families. And yeah, I think it, it'll be a fun beach read. Yeah. You know, although you, you'll end up, you know, talking like a wise guy at the end of it. You know. <laughs> that was a lot juicier than the book I recommend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always go for stuff that's like frivolous and fun, but this is this was a lot of fun. It's been really, uh, it's you know, vicarious living. You know that that those <laughs> criminal impulses that we all have sublimate, hopefully, because we're civilized. <laughs> all right, hey, what a fantastic conversation with you. Um, I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Andrew, and uh, I I can't wait to to see what more you come up with about Shogun. I will be following your work closely. Thanks so much, guys. Pleasure to be on. Yeah. Hope to see you maybe in Shaman. <laughs> yeah, see you in Shaman. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com. Hey, by the way, a lot of people have been writing to me, and it's been really great. I'm really super glad that people have been writing, so please keep that up. Uh, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, hey, and by the way, no one's writing reviews. Write, write some reviews on, on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, really, come on. Just that, I'm not asking a lot. Just write a damn review. Anyway, this does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.